坚定推进改革，减除繁苛，维护公正，培育和壮大市场主体。And that was the voice of Chinese Premier Li Keqiang speaking ahead of the so-called Two Sessions Policy Summit. He was talking about cutting red tape and upholding justice. But what about the key policy area of competition that dominated the meetings last year? We'll be crossing to Hong Kong in the second part of today's podcast to read the tea leaves with our Greater China correspondent. I'm James Paniki, Asia Pacific senior editor here at Mlex, and it's great to be in your feed yet again. This is our weekly podcast covering the top regulatory stories of the week with the help of our team of reporters around the world. First up today, we return to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and an American pair of major providers of global internet backbone services announced earlier this month that they had discontinued services to Russia. And more recently, the London Internet Exchange, which is a UK-based internet traffic exchange point, also announced that it would no longer service two major Russian internet providers. This has led to conjecture that Russia could splinter off from the internet. But assuming that has actually happened or is likely to happen, is it in the interest of those opposing the invasion? Our DC-based technology reporter Dave Pereira has written a piece of analysis dealing with this very question, and he joins me now. So, firstly, Dave, is Russia indeed isolated from the global internet? So, by all appearances, at the moment, Russia is still plugged in.、Uh, the two U.S. service providers in question have since clarified their decision to stop providing services directly. To Russian internet service providers doesn't mean that they'll stop carrying Russian internet traffic, meaning that they haven't disconnected Russia from the from the backbone, and that's partly also because Russian internet service providers don't only get broadband through direct connections with these two companies, which, by the way, are called Cogent and Lumen. And Lumen,、uh, just quickly, also used to be called CenturyLink. Instead, there's a handoff uh, uh, between these two companies that occurs in networking centers based in Europe and outside of Russia, and、uh, two major centers for for that handoff occur are in、uh, Frankfurt and in Stockholm. And there's also telecoms that service the Russian market, but which aren't technically Russian companies since they have their headquarters again in Europe. There's one company that gets half its revenue from.、Uh, Russian business、uh, was founded in Moscow, but its headquarters today are in Amsterdam, so it's not affected. Plus, as big as they are,、uh, Cogent and Lumen are not the only providers of internet backbone, and it's literally in the design of the internet to route around blockages.、Um, that's also why the decision by the London Internet Exchange doesn't seem to be having、uh, that big an effect. Okay, so Dave, given that technical background,、uh, can you tell us why it was that Cogent and Lumen stopped providing direct connections to Russian internet service providers? So they they've both clarified their statements that、uh, they're attempting to head off the possibility of a Russian cyber attack. So a Cogent spokeswoman told me that her company's main concern was that the Kremlin could order a Russian telecom provider located in Russia to undertake a denial of service attack that exploits that direct connection between the, the Russian telecom 
and Kojin, which is why they decided to sever that direct connection. Uh, so by taking the connections offline, the possibility of exploiting uh, Lumen or, or cogent infrastructure is diminished. So with that uh, risk of cyber attacks, I suppose it raises the question of whether or not Western companies should be servicing uh, Russian internet service providers at all, whether directly or indirectly, right? It, it also brings up questions of... Uh, of, of morality and communications in, in, a, in the global environment. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is obviously wrong, uh, and the sanctions put on the Kremlin are meant to isolate the Putin regime. So continuing to do business with Russia is morally fraught. That said, Putin wants to saturate ordinary Russians with disinformation and propaganda and cut off their access to outside sources of information. So discontinuing global internet access very arguably plays into his hands. You also asked about cyber attacks. There, there are a lot of uh, denial of service attacks going on, apparently going on, that, that are affecting the uh, worldwide availability of some Russian websites, uh, including uh, Russian government websites. It, it's not clear that disconnecting uh, Russia from the internet, uh, it would certainly end uh, the denial of service attacks, but it would also essentially be one giant denial of service attack undertaken by cutting it off from the global infrastructure. So in all, the developing consensus among civil society is that Russia or ordinary Russians are best served today uh, by by having access to the internet where uh, through it might require a little bit of technical knowledge they might have to be using a virtual private network for example in order to get outside sources of information but it seems on all better to keep ordinary Russians connected than to disconnect them now disconnection might be in the cards anyway, because it's an open possibility whether Russian internet service providers will be able to pay for transit to uh, the internet backbone, given all of the financial sanctions put on Russia and the plummeting value of the ruble. So the longer the invasion of Ukraine continues, the more fragile Russia's connection to the global internet will be. Dave, it's a highly complex and volatile situation, but thank you so much for walking us through it today. Let's catch up again very soon. Thanks so much. Dave Pereira, an MLEX reporter based in Washington, D.C., from where he was joining us today. And Dave's analysis of this issue is online and ready for you to read and enjoy. We have a website, and here's how you find it. MLEXmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. There's also an archive of our podcasts, which you may want to explore when you're out having your evening walk and need to unwind with some quality regulatory content. Coming up, the two sessions policy talks bring a change of emphasis in China. And don't forget, you can subscribe to MLEX's podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. James Paniki with you. Thank you for making it this far. Now, last year at around this time, we were chatting about China's influential two sessions policy forums, 
And you'll remember that the agenda was dominated by antitrust. And indeed, there was no shortage of competition enforcement over the course of the last year, with record fines on Alibaba and Meituan, marking the first year that Samra, the country's competition enforcer, had taken on big tech. Yet this year, there appeared to be a slight change of emphasis, one that our chief correspondent for Greater China, Yonex Lee, was only too aware of. And she joins us now from Hong Kong. So, uh, Yonex, firstly, remind us what Two Sessions is and what these gatherings are ultimately designed to achieve. Um, so, Two Sessions is uh, what we call in uh, Langhui in Mandarin. It is an annual gathering of legislators and political leaders in China. Um, specifically, it's a plenary meeting of the National People's Congress, which is uh, China's top legislature, and also that of the um, Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is uh, China's top advisory body, comprising uh, party delegates and representatives from different sectors, uh, such as those from the legal, business, scientific, and arts industries. So their meetings are usually held in March uh, every year, and it is the political highlight where we can get a sense of uh, the key political and economic agendas ahead for China. So that's why it's so important and so closely observed. And this year, the two sessions uh, started on March 4th and closed on March 11th. Okay, so we know that antitrust was a very hot topic at last year's two sessions. How prominent an issue was competition this year? Mm-hmm. Um, unlike last year, when antitrust issues occupied almost uh, most of the headlines, news headlines at the two sections, substantial updates on this front were uh, relatively scarce at this year's two sections. Instead, we see that uh, economic stability has topped this year's government work report which was uh, delivered at the meetings by uh, Premier Li Keqiang. It looks like economic challenges are causing Chinese leaders to focus their efforts to support the economy to grow. And the target this year is uh, to grow by 5.5%. And that pushed antitrust uh, work lower on the agenda for the months ahead. Okay, so why was that? I mean, why did the two sessions prioritize economic objectives over antitrust issues this year? I think there are a couple of reasons uh, for this. Uh, On the one hand, uh, uh, last year, 2021, was already a bumper year for antitrust enforcement in China. And they had uh, record fines against tech uh, giants like uh, Alibaba, Meituan, and also intervened to uh, Tencent's uh, merger activities, say that uh, in in the uh, video gaming uh, live streaming industry, and arguably that they have uh, created sufficient uh, deterrence against uh, potential wrongdoers and broad markets that have gone astray back onto the right track. And then uh, on the other hand, uh, Chinese leaders have more burning issues to deal with, as the premier, uh, as Premier Li has mentioned, that the Chinese economy is facing downward pressures this year, and those risks uh, come from its uh, zero COVID strategy strategy that is that is disrupting economic activities and also a slowdown in the property market because of government controls and most recently uncertainties uh, stemming from the russian uh, the russia uh, russia ukraine war and the war is presenting Im- immediate challenges for china not just uh, geopolitically but also in uh, economic terms because uh, you know rising oil prices are threatening to push up imported inflation in china so as a result we see that uh, macroeconomic policies uh, like job creation and uh, fiscal support for enterprises dominate much of uh, China's agenda uh, latest world report. 
Now, does this mean that antitrust issues are now on the back burner or are they uh, still getting attention among Chinese leaders? Um, definitely, they are still getting attention and antitrust issues uh, or objectives do figure in this year uh, uh, government work report. And so the wording is that China will, um, uh, quote, deepen uh, the implementation of fair competition policies, strengthen anti-monopolies and anti-unfair competition, and maintain a fair and orderly market environment, end of quote. End of quote. But this uh, rhetoric is modest compared with that in 2021, when Premier Li called for reinforcing anti-monopolies and also guarding against the disorderly expansion of capital and to resolutely maintain a fair competitive market. So we see a subtle change in terms of the uh, language that is softer compared to last year. And uh, at the same time, uh, the two uh, sections representatives, they have also uh, discussed a few antitrust issues and bring them to people's attention, like uh, calling for stronger enforcement against, uh, against the digital economy and protecting the in-app mini programs from abuses by tech platforms. Okay, so now uh, looking forward, what should we expect on the antitrust front in China in the months ahead? Mm -hmm. Um, We are still very much looking forward to the amendment of the anti-monopoly law. It's been going on for some time. Uh, Initially, it was expected to be finalized uh, late last year. And uh, much to uh, the disappointment of the legal community, there were not uh, substantial updates during the two sessions on on the amendment. We just know that the legislature standing committee said that uh, it's going to be one of the major tasks in the coming year. And it's possibly because the amendment itself doesn't have to go through a review during the two sessions. But at the same time, the, uh, the delay may reflect the, uh, the gaps among different parties over some uh, contentious issues, and they need additional time to, uh, to, to reach a consensus. And then in terms of enforcement, we understand that SAMR is, and its uh, local branches are working hard to web up a number of probes and antitrust investigations that may uh, result in penalties. And late last year, senior uh, officials, antitrust officials, said that they are uh, the platform economy, uh, technological innovation, information security, and sectors relevant to people's uh, uh, livelihoods would be the focus area. So we are looking forward to the enf- enforcement results in the coming months. Yonix, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, James. Yonex Lee speaking to us from Hong Kong, and Yonex is our chief correspondent for Greater China, and she has prepared a fine piece of analysis on this year's two sessions. You'll find it at the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, .com. Just head for the News Hub tab. Now, sadly, that's where I'll have to leave you for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time with the top regulatory stories of the moment. I hope you can join me then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now.